Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. Last show of the year today, very exciting. I know, can't believe it. Time has flown, as they say. I mean, yeah, it has, (laughs) (laughs) as they say. No, it really has. It's also very cold in the studio, so I'm feeling quite alert. Yeah, we're in scarves. Mm -hmm. But I took off my coat. You did, so did I. Yeah. (laughs) Ready to... Spend some time with you, coatless. Excellent chat. So good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to go straight into it. (laughs) Today, we're going into therapy, or more accurately, we'll be talking about therapy's intersection with literature. See what I did there? I did, and I loved it. And also, I actually do just want this to be a therapy session now. (laughs) Which side of the couch are we both on, though? Well, I was about to say, I think, hmm, I would say you might be a better therapist. Do you think? Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. I think I think you you're you're good at that. Thanks. You're pretty good at it too, to be honest. I'm okay. Maybe we'll do like a bonus episode where we do we swap and we no, I'm I'm running away with myself. Anyway. <laughs> Does analysis make good fiction? Do therapists make good characters or good authors? And what has the language of psychology given to literature? We're very happy that to help us answer these questions, today we will be talking to the novelist Ben Lerner, whose third novel, The Topeka School, is a brilliant meditation on family, toxic masculinity, whiteness, and American life, told through the lens of one man's coming of age in Topeka, Kansas, and also some debating in the 90s. Octavia, do you want to introduce Ben Lerner? I'd love to. Ben Lerner was born in Topeka, Kansas in 1979. He has received fellowships from the Fulbright, Guggenheim and the MacArthur Foundations and is the author of three internationally acclaimed novels, Leaving the Atocha Station, 1004 and The Topeka School. He has published the poetry collections The Lichtenberg Figures, Angle of Yore, a finalist for the National Book Award, Mean Free Path and No Art, as well as the essay The Hatred of Poetry. He lives and teaches in Brooklyn. So today you'll hear our interview with Ben. We'll talk more generally about the theme of therapy in literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So lay down on the couch and do the work with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. Nailed that one. Thank you. Very good. Ben Lerner, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from the Topeka School. Could you go ahead? Yeah. So they've just, this is after a big fight at a house party. They felt at once profoundly numb and profoundly ecstatic to be young and inflicting optional damage on each other. The heat was its own justification, but so was the cold. There was a second-order thrill in knowing you could kick someone in the chest without emotion, to have violent conflict without competing notions of the good, a kind of surplus, to have something to do on the weekends. Eventually, they let the semi-conscious Reynolds get dragged away by his friends who were not badly beaten. They shouted something about retribution as they retreated. Where were the parents? Most were sleeping. 
Some were watching Friends or Frasier. Some were watching Sports Center. Some were doing desk work or wiping down the kitchen islands. Some were reading Rice and some were reading Clancy. Some were reading Adrian Rich or non-interpretive mechanisms in psychoanalytic therapy or pretending to read. Some were coming back from date night in Kansas City or making perfunctory love or waiting for internet pornography to load in an otherwise dark carpeted basement office. Some were at a conference in Toledo. Some were on stationary bikes or the Bowflex or tinkering in the garage or cleaning guns. Some were trying email. Some were waiting for the beep of call waiting for their kids to check in while they spoke to others on the cordless. Some were worried and or oblivious. Some were line editing college applications or making rounds at St. Francis. Some were eating or opening a window or just walking dully along on a treadmill. Some were drinking gin and tonics in Taipei, and some were writing this in Brooklyn while their daughters slept beside them, and some were coming back on trains in dreams, and some were at rolling hills in Twilight State's mechanical beds. Great. Thank you so much. I remember reading that and laughing at making perfunctory love. <laughs> I love that. And I also think that passage is a really great example of how this book plays with fact and fiction and sort of dances between the two um, in a really playful way, not just in a sort of self-serious way, which is great. So I wanted to just start by asking about that. Um, mm -hmm. This is a novel about Adam. He's a debater. He grows up in Topeka. Both of his parents work at this foundation, which is a famous psychiatric institute and hospital. You were a debater. You grew up in Topeka. I mean, I feel everyone who's asked you about this novel has asked you this question, but I think it's important to ground it. And you had two parents who worked at the Menninger Foundation. And your two previous novels have mapped onto your experience in this way. But I wonder what made you want to go even deeper and sort of mine your own family experience, because I imagine that's a different kind of project mm -hmm. by bringing not just yourself, but the other people around you in your life into your fiction. Yeah. So I think of the three novels really as a trilogy. And this book is kind of about prehistory, like it's about how patterns recur across generations or some of the kind of political prehistory of the present. And so I wanted to write like a third term in the trilogy that would bring it to an end, but would also be the prehistory of the other two books, a kind of prequel. Um, it's like the unconscious of the other two books in a certain way. And it was like a kind of riskier proposition psychologically. And for a long time, I thought I would write like about a younger version of myself in the first person, like the other two novels are first person books. But I found that I didn't really have access to like my teenage interiority, that I actually could have like more it was like, I was like more capable of imagining my childhood from my parents perspective and so the first person sections are largely belong to the parents um, so it's still using biographical material but it's also kind of about being ejected from your own experience to a certain degree and recollecting it from the perspective of people who are around you and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the sections that are in Jane's voice mm -hmm. Partially because we get her both in the first person and in the third person, which I thought was really interesting. And partially because in those first person sections, I loved that we're meant to think that Adam is sort of interviewing her for this book. So mm -hmm. first of all, I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about your own mother's research and the books that she wrote, but also why you think it was easier for you to access that voice and why you wanted to show those 
those different registers of, mm-hmm. of her voice in the book. Yeah, I mean, my mom's a writer. You know, she's a, we're very different writers, but she's a writer and she's always been my kind of, like she was the first writer I knew, you know, and she was like the first reader of my work and we're very close and she's a very good editor. So there's a way in which I'm always kind of in conversation with her. But of course, since I was writing a book that involves um, fictionalized versions of her work and experience, that conversation took place earlier and often. I mean, um, so yeah, the first section with Jane, which is like the really kind of spoken section, sounds like the transcript of a conversation and wasn't really. There was no, I mean, I just wrote it, but then we discussed it so often after the fact that it does, like I get confused in a way about, you know, like it, so she was very involved in, in kind of conversations about it. I mean, I've always really admired both my parents, my mom's work in about like, I mean, my mom wrote a book called The Dance of Anger, which was really controversial at the time it was published. It's argument, maybe this is controversial again, it's argument was that women, if they were angry in relationships, might be something other than hysterical, that it might imply there was like a need for structural change. And um, she got kind of famous, she got she got famous as a result of the book, which was also weird to be a kid in Topeka with this mom who was being celebrated as like a feminist and also fighting like a lot of battles. I wasn't really aware of this at the time, like where she worked because it was a popular book. And so she was kind of like accused of um, and often very gendered terms of having like sold out complicated psychodynamic ideas or whatever. So so there's but there's a way in which when I started writing fiction I think my parents work on family systems, like on the way that, again, like the way like patterns recur across generations, um, started to be really influential to the way I was thinking about art making. Because, I mean, you know, like a novel is a work of patterning and the way that like meaning accrues through repetition. I mean, that's how you build up an aesthetic form. And I think the kind of sensitivity that had always been in the air about the way like certain family mythologies circulate or the way that you know demystification in a family can be really important in order to in order to like avoid the repetition of a certain kind of pattern or whatever like those were important family principles or intellectual principles but they were also to, in a way that I didn't at first understand kind of good principles for how you build a novel so this book's weird cuz this book is like a, you know, it's a work of patterning and it's also about patterning and it's a work of my prehistory and it's also about prehistory. So there's this kind of identity between content and form that I think owes a lot to her um, sensitivity to family, to family systems. Like the novel is a system in a way that I think is somewhat similar to the way she's, she's conceived of the family as a system. It's also about anger, yeah. right? right? So it feels yeah. like a, it's in conversation maybe in that dynamic as Absolutely. well yeah and it's very much uh, um, rooted in in the masculine experience of anger which you know writing about male rage did you have any anxieties about approaching that topic I mean I'm kind of all anxiety all the time in a way that, <laughs> that, that makes it kind of hard for me to like sort you know like when there was like the Kavanaugh hearing and there was like that tone the tone of the indignation the Kavanaugh indignation the like kind of how dare you accuse how dare anyone accuse me of anything like that I mean you guys know about this tone like I remember right around it and so everyone what everyone that I knew like in my world was of course 
really disgusted and I was really disgusted by it too but I was also like thinking like about this book I was like it, like instead of just like disavowing instead of just saying like what a gross familiar um masculine mode of speech I was trying to think like so like what part of that is inside me like what like what part of that do I have because it's really easy to to just disavow like to see like the kind of pinnacle of the ugliness of a certain mode of privilege or whatever and to disavow it and I was more trying to think about like again like where, like where are those voices and in, inside me and they're not so e it's like it's really easy to proclaim your disavowal and it's harder to actually like kind of like excavate it I think it was anxiety producing to try to have to think about the degree to which like the book because like one of the things the book is about is like intergenerational transmission how you like transmit more than you mean to transmit you know from one generation to another and so I definitely think it was anxiety producing to think about the kind of ugliness that might be in my voice or ugliness that might be in my voice that I'm at risk of trans you know of transmitting yeah I don't I'm not even sure if anxiety is the right word exactly but there was something like kind of mentally disorganizing about it and I would and I in this I mean I always threaten to throw away the books I'm writing and I but I usually don't really mean it mm -hmm. like usually it's just like a way of getting but I often st stopped I was often gonna not write this book it's interesting also because as you're talking about the importance of prehistory throughout this novel you also tie it very directly to the contemporary political situation in the United States and the voice of Trump and, like you say, Kavanaugh and everything. And it, it felt to me like it is a kind of exploration of of intergenerational political passings on as well. And uh, the strand of the narrative that's about competitive debate, which is something that, as a Brit, is completely new to me. Carrie, maybe you had more of an understanding of it we didn't have it in my high school but it's, um, yeah i mean yeah. i want to ask cult. you about yeah, it, it, it sounds insane but it also sounds it sounds to me and forgive me but it, it sounds pointless and violent yeah. and the way that it's tied to um you have one character who's a, a debate coach who then becomes a conservative politician yeah. and to me it it the way you write about it and and how I received it, I was just like, yes, this is teaching people that meaning is not important. Yeah. Mode of delivery is the main thing. It's like this filibustering, uh, uh, dick swinging kind yeah. of thing. And I, I don't know, I, I, want you, I want you to talk about it. Well, the thing that was really fascinating about debate, but I mean, the thing you're referring to is called the spread, which was the speed thing where people would try to talk as fast as they could to just make the greatest number of arguments that they could, because if the other team couldn't respond in the allotted time, then it was considered to be like conceded. The argument would be conceded, but but it's there's just like no describing the spectacle of what this produced which would be these kind of like dorky kids speaking at this incredible rate like spit and sweat flying and people would like pass out or even throw up and like are like gasping for air and so it was the reduction of this like debate to this you know totally glossolalic weird um cultic ritual and it was really gross in a lot of ways and really shocking in a lot of ways i mean the book both wants it to be a metaphor, like exactly as you're saying, for kind of like the weaponization of eloquence, the emptying out of all content. Like the facts really don't matter. Like you're screaming about healthcare, you're screaming about, you know, like how to combat recidivism, but no one, it doesn't, I mean, the content doesn't matter. But I also kind of felt like there was something interesting about these adolescent kids, like 
acknowledging the bankruptcy of mainstream political discourse and making it into this weird kind of sound poetry, you know, like so that there's there's both like the badness of the spread and there's also this kind of like utopian glimmer where it becomes this weird kind of poetry where you can like re-encounter just flow and prosody and grammar as such. You know, the spread is like one example where language is being used not to communicate but to obfuscate or overwhelm. And I, I mean, I think the main way that that's like a political metaphor for the Trump era is that while like Trump, of course, speaks, you know, really haltingly in this agrammatic a grammatical mashup of racial signaling, the thing that he really understands is that 5,000 scandals a day is safer for his administration than one scandal, you know, big scandal every six months. Like that, there's something incapacitating and overwhelming um, about like just stacking world historical scandal after scandal. So the, the spread like does want to be a kind of metaphor for that, that, notion of overwhelming but kind of like the other side of like the Kavanaugh thing like not disavowing the voice that's inside you is I also in the book like didn't want to only mock or lament or be disgusted by these theaters of extreme speech I also wanted to like see some little poetic spark one of the things I was thinking about when reading about debate as I said my high school didn't have this but I was a competitive athlete as a teenager I ran track and field for a long time and um there were so many parallels um, mm -hmm. between that experience and, and Adam's experience as a debater. And it was making me think about this American obsession with competition, of making everything into a competition, and how I don't regret that experience at all. I mean, it's made me a very competitive person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'll testify to that. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a very empowering thing, but it, it's also a very damaging thing. And I think this is a book about American hegemony as much as anything else. And I really felt that, that you were trying to excavate what is America doing? Like, what is it teaching these generations? How are ideas passed down? And I wonder if you could talk about competitiveness and, and how you see that related to the American mm -hmm. spirit and sort of need to dominate. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, well, one thing about like the spread or you know, and the athleticism of the spread is it's also just like a metaphor for kind of like accumulation without end. It's just like more, more and, you know, quantity instead of quality or whatever. And there's kind of like no value external to just like accumulation and expansion. And there is this way, I mean, there is this way in which like the disaster of the contemporary is in part the disaster of like a country that has no vocabulary for value that doesn't depend on growth, you know, like, so like the economy needs to stop growing for the planet to survive, right, as we all know, but like, there's just like no discourse for any kind of value that doesn't depend on growth. So there is something, and that's always been like really built into the American and all kinds of expansionist ways, right? So there is this sense in which like, if there, if there is an accumulation, there's just like a vacuum, there's an identity vacuum. Um, and really close to that and that notion of competitiveness is just the violence of the American, like defining yourself in like, like the way of defining yourself is to, is the violent demotion of some other and the white middle class boys at the heart of this book who are really lost in a lot of ways. I'm trying to get at like a kind of acuity of privilege, like, cause I was really interested in the nineties when, um, you're probably younger than I am, but the in the, the 90s, like the discourse was the end of history. This was like the mainstream political discourse, like with the fall of the Soviet Union and Berlin Wall. Right, yeah. exactly. 
uh, and that and that's how it was just going to be like baby like technocratic baby boomers from here on out that you know and and the discourse of the post racial was already circulating and um but then like so like you had because so who was the enemy that was going to define like like so what was what was going to be the technology for like white men to define themselves there was no there was no clear enemy and the kind of violence in the book it comes out of this like poverty that's at the heart of privilege which is like these this kind of vacuum in this standardized landscape where the kids are like borrowing spectacularized images of african-american violence through gangster rap in order to kind of beat the shit out of each other and feel alive because that's the only kind of like reality contact that they have and so yeah i mean it, i i think like i i'm really interested in that 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 like that that particular kind of i mean and i think of it as white and i and i think of it as male and i think of it as middle class or upper class like that a kind of competitiveness it's not even competitive but it, it's like it the, the, there's a there's a void and the available strategies for filling the void for these kids are misogyny homophobia again just to like to figure out racism to figure out um a way of defining themselves in opposition to some other yeah and that's of course um you have klaus who's this german jewish immigrant who comes to the foundation as sort of the father figure for many of the characters in the book that's his theory is that the absence of suffering is what causes suffering right which doesn't make it any less real right um and i was also thinking about when when you were talking i think the book does a very interesting thing by setting up these the, the two boys that we sort of get to know the most are adam of course and darren mm -hmm. who we learn very early on the book commits this act of violence we don't know what it is until the mm -hmm. very end and sort of is the stereotypical angry young white boy and adam is supposedly different from that but i think what i really liked about the book was it shows Adam's misogyny just manifesting in different ways from Darren's. And I, I wonder if that was something you were consciously trying to do and, and showing how they can be just as damaging. Yeah, well, I mean, Adam and Darren are really linked and really different at the same time because, like, Adam has all the privilege and language and loving, supportive parents and opportunity, and Darren doesn't. And Darren kind of can't... Um, like no community in the book knows how to hold Darren, you know, and also Adam and Darren are linked because Darren's therapist is Adam's dad. So they're in this kind of quasi fraternal symmetry that Adam can't know about because that would be privileged information. I mean, I think what what makes them really linked is that they're both totally disfigured by this desire to pass as real men, you know, and like they're both incredibly anxious about being like found out as as lacking in that regard and adam will have other models or like possibilities or privileges that darren won't i mean the only community that will have darren at the end of the book that you see in a kind of glimpse is are the most famous topekans of the phelps of westboro church but yeah the emphasis i mean i think you're right that like part of the point of the book is not to think of m misogyny or that kind of masculine terror or what it can produce is something that's like only darren's it's very much something that's also adam's and so their fates are really kind of symmetrical in the book i'm glad you used the word fate because that's 
really what I felt through the character of Darren is is it's almost Shakespearean because of the way you set up his character development. And as you said, Carrie, we, we find it right at the beginning that he, you know, he commits an act that has huge consequences. Um, and it's interesting in, in the book because you have this discourse between the kind of psychoanalytic language and the, the foundation and the parents who are therapists who think deeply about how patterns are escapable through enough discourse and all that kind of stuff. And then you have this character who seems to represent a locked on future that's inescapable. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about, you know, is is the detonation of masculine violence inevitable? You know, is that like, are figures like Darren, are they f bound by a certain fate? Yeah, that's an interesting way. Yeah, because in the book, yeah, it is really fated because it's to a certain degree, it's Adam he he is this he is like kind of Adam's double less privileged double in the book and it's marching headlong towards this act of violence that gathers a lot of the different strands of the book together that is to say like the book's about prehistory and the book is also about the prehistory of this moment of violence in a lot of ways so i think it's an it's an interesting question about fadedness because when you think about prehistory, it can go both ways, right? Like, 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 psychological emphases on prehistory are about repetition, that you're fated to repeat what you haven't consciously processed, right? So the question, I think, generally, and in the book is to what degree can language be used to illuminate a pattern so it can be broken. And like, for Adam and his mom, they're like ritual of misquotation of this little nonsense poem, the purple cow becomes this kind of way of like, like the, you know, the, like the Jane tries to get Adam to recite the poem, like at this game at bedtime. And he like purposefully misquotes it. And she finds that funny, but pretends to be exasperated. And it's like this little ritual of misquotation, but it's also this scene where intergenerational transmission is happening. Like Jane's mom taught her the poem. Now she's going to teach it to her son. But the misquotation, what makes that like a rich and loving moment for them is it's also showing the possibility of change across generations. So, yeah, I mean, your question is really useful for me. But I, I think I think like, yeah, like the book is, I guess, invested in this really foundational psychological precept, you know, for people who do work like my parents, which is that you you were, you know, which, of course, has the the, the political connotation too right like if you don't know history you're doomed to repeat it which is this idea that this this belief that that processing certain kinds of family history could give you the freedom not merely to repeat it it's also a book about how language can obfuscate as much as it reveals and jonathan adam's father says at one point we thought if we had a language for our feelings we might transcend them and we see over and over in this book about how psychological language is so helpful, but it also can hide. Um, yeah, for sure. And I, I felt reading this book, especially after reading your your first two books in the trilogy, that this was a book that was really trying to get beyond that, like sort of back to feeling almost. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if you felt that way while you were writing, because I, I'm sure you know sometimes one of the criticisms of your book has been that they're too cerebral. Mm -hmm. And this felt like a book that was not any less cerebral, but was also really engaging with feeling in a way that was really interesting to me and seemed to crack something open. I mean, I do think the political the political and personal presence intruded in a way for me. I mean, like having kids and the just kind of 
Rise, which is also, of course, a return of a really openly white supremacist right on every level, did make it, did make me feel like I, yeah, it did, it did make me feel like I had to write a, write a book that was like risking something different kind of psychologically. Um, I mean, the other books are, cere- they are, they, I mean, but at the same time, I think that this book by kind of changes some of the emotional valence of the other books. Like I think, and I think I was interested in that too, right? Like I think Adam's lie about his mom's being dead and leaving the Atocha station is a very different kind of lie. If you've read this book, like, and you know about the the importance of that relationship to him or whatever. Like, I liked the idea of being able to write a book that both took new emotional risks, but would also change the resonances of the other two books, you know, for like the 15 people who are reading all three or whatever. You know? <laughs> I mean, um, so, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think I did have to risk. I also just think I had to like write a book where I wasn't really so clear what I was doing in a certain way. Like, it just felt like... I, like kind of the first novel like I, I kind of I, I wrote and loved writing it but like thought okay like I'm not really a novelist and then the second one was in a way like I had this imagination of the diptych with the other and there were like real emotional concerns but it was also like repeating this kind of first person um, m- mode and that that I just I felt like I felt like they were although they had significant differences, they were quite similar in a lot of obvious ways and that I just needed to write, in order to write a novel that felt alive, I had to do something I wasn't comfortable with. So I do think it was kind of riskier for me. Part of the evidence of that is how unclear I am about like when I wrote it and like what, like I, it's like, it's like I have this real confusion. Like I can't remember writing whole sections of it, you know, so maybe I've like repressed part of it. But it was a risk. Yeah, it was like a riskier and rawer kind of emotional territory for sure. There's a phrase that shows up in your um, acknowledgments where you you reference a painting that comes into the book and you even have a, a small section of it printed in the book that is to do with the unstable mixture of fact and fiction, which feels like a thread that runs through this trilogy mm-hmm. profoundly. Um, and I wondered, do you do you see yourself ever writing a novel that is less connected to your own biography or less a model of those two things? I want to say yes, because I have no, like, a priori commitment to, like, writing out of one's own biography. Like, I'm, you know, many of the books I love don't involve that at all, but I've never done it. So I don't, like, maybe there's some way in which I can't do it or, I don't know. I mean, I'm in this moment where I don't know if I'll write another I mean, I've written, you know, three books of poems and do a lot of collaborations with artists. And I think of those as far away from biographical material, but as even more personal, just in ways that aren't necessarily kind of as legible. So there's a strange thing. I mean, like sometimes using autobiographical material and insisting on like your experience as stuff that you manipulate is actually a way into the impersonal. Like it's a way of, it's a way of saying like my experience is also social and malleable and I don't really have a privileged perspective on it. Like it's a way of exteriorizing and then manipulating and so kind of distancing yourself from interiority. Whereas I sometimes think like, and like thinking in terms of like, like what you repeat when you're not conscious, like I feel like you can write like a book about, you know, the court intrigue in the 17th century or whatever, and it can end up being about your marriage, you know, in ways that you weren't even aware. So I I think like, I think 
I think to me, like the, the, I mean, you mentioned the Duccio, which what I love about that painting is the frame that's burnt in places. Like, I think to a certain degree, it's the question is like, it's always going to be personal work. The degree is, the degree is just like where you set the frame. Like, how much do you um, acknowledge the way biographical, biographical experience enters into it and work with that as material? And to what degree do you try to keep that out of the frame? I also think that there's a way in which part of why I have been so drawn to writing with like versions of the biographical is to escape the um, the bad universalism of the like great American novel discourse. Like I'm I, like I mean I understand that the charge that like writing out of your own experience can be quite narcissistic or irritating or whatever. But to me, the bigger risk is pretending to have perfect access to everyone's experience but i think that that could be acknowledged in ways that don't that don't involve topeka <laughs> although i've never i've never written a book in which the word topeka doesn't someone was pointing out to me doesn't doesn't appear even in, in passing ben Lerner, it's been an absolute delight to have you on literary friction thank you so much thank for coming you. on today thanks for having me This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is therapy and literature. I'm surprised we haven't done this before. It seems like such a rich topic, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I feel like we've touched upon it in conversations with Otessa Moschweg, for example, but we've yeah, there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, so let's dive right in. Um, why do you think therapy is such an appealing topic for literature? Well, I mean, there's the obvious first answer is that it's a great structure for getting into like deep truths about a character without it feeling artificial you know like trying to draw those things out in conversation between friends in a novel for example could could easily feel really trite but actually it gives you the chance to have you know a character's deeper motivations revealed as separate from their actions in quite a neat way so I think that's you know that's like a a first port of call for it you know, and 
uh, the example that you gave actually, which is totally right, The Sopranos really capitalizes on that. You know, like how do you get behind the wall of the mob boss? Oh, you put him in therapy and then he can play out all of his transference and we can read deeper inference into all of his other behaviors as a result of it. Obviously, that's television, but, you know, it's written. Yeah. And it's funny that I gave that example because I haven't actually watched The Sopranos oh, and you man. have. It's so great. But yeah, it's a it's a perfect example, though just to show the sort of microcosm of that relationship and how a relationship between a therapist and their client provides an imprint for the relationship that each of those people have with everybody else. Mm. Um, so, you know, as a device, it's really brilliant. But I think also these days, because therapy is so in the public consciousness and obviously not always positively for everybody, but it is very much um, cultural currency, Everyone has a, a, a sort of context for it already. So you don't have to do a huge amount of legwork around that like you would have had to do 100 years ago, for example. So I think it's also tapping into a zeitgeist. Yeah. And that's enjoyable. And it allows, for example, like in My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is a, a book by Othessa Moshfeg that is critical of the power that a therapist or a psychoanalyst might have over a patient. Because we've reached a point where that's possible. So... As a device, there's lots of places you can take it, but it gives you this quite powerful centrifugal force of, of character. Yeah, I think you're right. And you're totally right about the language of therapy and psychoanalysis infecting the culture. I was thinking about the kinds of conversations with my friends, and I could see them being almost inconceivable to people 150 years ago, the way that we always contextualize people's actions in terms of the things that have happened to them in their lives before and sort of what's going on in their brain, um, how they're living. And I'm not saying that it's a bad way to frame the world, but it's certainly, I think you're right, it, it in some ways defines our age. And so it would be hard not to write a novel that at least engages with some of those ideas of, of character, not least. I wanted to pause you there, though, because I wanted to ask you why you use the word infecting. Yeah. Because it's so <laughs> telling. But like while we're talking about psychoanalysis, you know, this is the thing in the world of literature and words. You know, it, it gives space for a really thoughtful way of engaging with which words are used and which words aren't and what they mean. And the for me, like the the idea of it as an infection is interesting because that obviously has quite a negative um, like slant on it, whereas I would sort of think of it as like something that's opened up do you know what I mean mm. but you could see it in either way yeah I suppose I probably in some have a positive view of it so I, I'm not sure why I use such a word with such negative connotation I suppose I am slightly influenced by Ben learn reading the Topeka school recently which is skeptical of therapeutic language and shows how it is both something that confuses feeling but also explains feeling yeah absolutely and really makes you as the reader question the absolutism that therapeutic language gives us to say oh but her motivation was clearly this as though you know whereas you actually have no access to the person's unconscious unless you are their therapist and even if you are their therapist there's obviously all the space for human error mm. so I think you know you're absolutely right as is he to to call that into question and it's easy to get swept along by you know, the the promise of these tools, of the therapeutic tool in culture, in your own life, in your own relationships, because they promise they do promise so much. But if we forget to also be skeptical of the power that the power dynamics of those relationships as well, then we get into trouble. And there's some brilliant literature that kind of calls our attention to that. Yeah, 
But what, one of the other re- things I was thinking about when I was thinking about why is therapy so potent for literature is that it's just a, a means of interrogating the self, which is, of course, one of the things when I think about why I love literature, it's because it's it's a mode of art that interrogates humanity. And, yeah, absolutely. And again, interrogate is kind of a negative word. Maybe I'm just in a cranky mood today or something. <laughs> I love it. I but, love it. <laughs> but it's uh, including therapy in a book is an, is just another way of reaching deep down into the minds of humans and into the relationships of humans as well. Yeah, definitely. But also, like, there's a, a huge number of examples of psychotherapists who have written books, both fiction and nonfiction, because because they're people who are in the business of understanding character. And I think that there is such a natural relationship between the psychotherapist and the novelist if they don't cross over within one psyche. You know, there's a there's a reason why it feels like a natural pairing in some way. Yeah, totally. I loved talking to Ayelet Gundergashen about that at Cheltenham, yeah. who wrote Liar and is is also still works, I believe, as a therapist. Yeah, she practices. Um, but I, lo- I loved her point where she said, yes, it, I'm fascinated by humans, and that's what makes me a good therapist and also a good novelist. But it's not necessarily about using the stories of my patients. It's about understanding how people's minds work. Yeah, and and I remember her talking about the pleasure in taking um, impossible scenarios or like things that we shouldn't be thinking about that cu- the cultural unconscious kind of shuts out because they're too horrible and using fiction as a space to examine without judgment, which is obviously the practice of therapy is all about accepting and noticing all of your different drives without judging any of them, which is, by the way, a work of a lifetime. But, you know, that's the goal. And that's definitely something when I was thinking along those lines, I was thinking of Elizabeth Strout as well. She is someone who welcomes her characters into the world without judgment and allows them to behave in whatever way they need to. Do you think putting it on a metal level that literature can be therapeutic? Definitely. I definitely do. I think that I think that there is a complicated intersection, though, in this idea with capitalism and with um culture telling people what they should and shouldn't do and what they should and shouldn't seek out but I think that uh, there is definitely a therapeutic goal in reading and learning but also escaping I just think that you should be able I shouldn't even use the word should now that we're thinking therapeutically I'm like wait a second (laughs) pipe down but I, I think the goal is for a person to be able to choose their own therapy through literature on their own and not be told that certain books are good for improving yourself and certain books are bad and all that kind of stuff and then of course there's that trend which I know you're not a big fan of of um, kind of bibliotherapy yeah. and books about that, which to me feel quite like just a capitalist tool to get you to buy a bunch of books. Yeah, I think that's why I'm skeptical yeah. because it, it feels like a cop out from actually doing the work yeah. to use the phrase. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of self-help books in general. Yeah. But bibliotherapy, there seems to be something particularly crass about commercializing two things that I think are incredibly important in people's lives. Right. And possibly, you know, the intersection comes naturally, but they are actually also quite separate. Having said that, though, I did quite enjoy, there's a book called The Novel Cure by Ella Berthoud. I don't know how you pronounce her name, Berthoud, which is a silly, it's a silly bibliotherapy book. And it's quite kind of lighthearted and frivolous, but it's quite fun. 
Yeah, and having said that, I recently picked up The Poetry Pharmacy by William Seaghart. Have you come across this? No. It's wonderful. It's this... (laughs) We're backtracking very hard. (laughs) No judgment. (laughs) No. I I think we've... There are too many layers going on here. I can't keep track of everything. I'm going to send this show to my therapist to listen to. (laughs) Um, he he just has different things that somebody might be struggling with in their lives and then just gives you a few poems and they're really well selected and they're wonderful poems and it's actually like I, I somebody sent it to me and I really didn't think I would like it and then I opened it up to a poem and read the poem and just felt sort of lightened by it that's so, beautiful yeah and that's exactly wonderful. what poetry is good for my mum always sends me poems if I'm feeling sad and it's something that when I was a kid, she brought me up doing as well, that that was like the role that poetry played in our lives. We had these big collections of poetry by loads of different poets. And if I was feeling cranky or sad, she'd say, like, go and pick a poem and we'd read it together. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. That's nice. I should get her that book, actually, yeah. shouldn't I? I mean, I think the thing with the self-help stuff, when it comes to therapists writing books, because the really important thing to bring into this conversation is therapy is still quite an exclusive thing. It's expensive. It's not available to everybody. There is class and race uh, divisions folded into the entire experience of it. So therapists writing books about therapy, demystifying the process, opening those tools to people who can't afford to have one-on-one time with a therapist, I think is incredibly important. And I think that bracketing that under a slightly dismissive kind of self-help label is dangerous. Yes, I agree. And I think it's worth us talking about nonfiction books about therapy as well. There is a rich tradition of therapists, psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, all the different kinds of people writing about their practice and their work. So The Examined Life by Stephen Gross, Love's Executioner by Irvin Yalom, which I haven't read, but everyone points to as the sort of foundational text of a therapist writing about his patients in different case studies in therapy by Susie Orbach did that as well. There was a book that was really successful recently called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb about her own therapy and work as a therapist. And of course, Esther Perel, who we talk about all the time on this show, has written books, Mating in Captivity and the State of Affairs, about her work with couples. So I do think there's a real fascination with peeling back the layers and sort of understanding how this process works absolutely and the joy is when you find a therapist who's also a good writer because they're not you know by default a a good therapist would not necessarily also be a good writer but Esther Perel is a a fantastic writer I I get the sense that maybe she isn't a great writer and has great editors do you think is that should I not say that on no you can absolutely say that on air I I basically I guess when I say she's a great writer I mean I enjoy reading her books okay should we give our recommendations for books about therapy that we like yeah definitely mine is actually a little bit of a step back from therapy it's kind of about pre-therapy um, it's nonfiction. It's called Medical Muses, Hysteria in 19th Century Paris by Asti Hustvern. It was published quite, quite a while ago, early 2012, 2012-ish, I think. Um, and it's a history of three female patients at the Salpetria Hospital in Paris in the 19th century, where hysteria was being studied and documented. And Freud trained there. And this was where he was first exposed to this disorder, which ultimately led him to first think about unconscious drives, which in a really brief nutshell, gave birth to psychoanalysis Um, and it paints this incredibly fascinating picture of the place and the time but also it's a sort of feminist history project where Hustvet restores the personhood to these three women who were taken as ciphers just for symptoms and were kind of exploited really as dolls but had their own needs and had their own unconscious 
wishes and she looks at the structural oppression that might have led to hysteria manifesting in these particular ways this is obviously a, a area of like deep interest for me because of my own research but she takes you on this wild ride through like ovary compressors and hypnotism and weird feathered hats to measure tremors and it's a very careful anthropology of all this stuff and I think if you're interested in therapy and you're interested in also the sexism of historical medical history fact-based stuff read it and give yourself a bit more of a grounding in actually how crucial women's physical bodies and minds were to the birth of psychoanalysis and how gendered it was. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really interesting. Well, I'm going to recommend The Examined Life by Stephen Gross. This is a slim, beautiful collection in which the author, who is a psychoanalyst in London, describes different patients he has encountered in his career and how they worked through their issues. So each ch chapter is kind of a case study, which is a composite. I don't always agree with his conclusions. Um, I think I'm the more skeptical of the two of us generally, and I'm quite skeptical of psychoanalysis especially. But he writes really beautifully, and I think you don't have to agree with him to understand the importance of the work of thinking about what people say about themselves and how they lose and find themselves, which I think is some version of the subtitle of this book. And I loved reading how he thinks about humans, too. It's just, as as we were saying, a fascinating look inside of the mind of a therapist and the way they do their work and, and the consideration with which they approach their patients. I remember one chapter in which he discussed a man who always diffuses things with humor and his interrogation of why this person was doing this. It's so, so fascinating. If you're interested in humans, I think you'd be interested in this book. I really want to read it. Like desperately. Yeah, fascinating. I'll loan you my copy. I can't loan you my copy of Medical Muses because I'm reading it in the British Library, but it's there. I, I might check that out. <laughs> you are so not going to. I'll give you the crib notes. Great. Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt back here with Octavia Bright and also Ben Lerner to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start, please? I would love to start. Um, this month, I'm going to recommend Patti Smith's most recent book, The Year of the Monkey. And it feels like a bit of a cheat because I'm only halfway through. But uh, I will back Patty <laughs> always. Um, and it's it's honestly just been such a pleasure to dip in and out of her brain again that I, I feel okay to talk about it. I love her writing. Um, and it's a really, she's the kind of writer that encourages you to pick, pick it up and put it down. It's not really narrative driven so much as, um, especially this book. It's a very surreal 
exploration of mental slippages and uh, actually it feels quite good to talk about it in the context of Ben, ben of your writing because she's doing a lot of mapping of fact and fiction um, but she's kind of in a, a hallucinatory very reflective space a bit later on in her life. Um, it's kind of structured around a tour that she takes recently, basically. Um, and it's taking in the changes in America's political landscape. It's taking in her feelings, this evolving sense of self that's really molded by aging, by grief, by reflection, travel. She's a real modern troubadour. Um, so yeah, I think it's great. I, I, I really recommend it. Great. I have only read Just Kids. It's very different from Just Kids, and it's great. I'm preferring it to M Train, which I wasn't that keen on, I have to say. Um, but yeah, no, it's wonderful. It's like having her whispering in your ear, if you're a Patty fan. I love, um, I've seen her a couple of times, and I love how like stuck in the 60s she is in this really beautiful way. She's like very into peace and love. Big time. Which feels really anachronistic, but like almost what we need now, maybe. I it's don't know. It's a wonderful thing, yeah. although I had one awkward experience with her where, at, not personally with her, I was at a, a tour she was doing, and she got everyone to wave their hands in the air and seeing the people have the power. But we were in a room of white Guardian readers and most people mm. were silver haired and it was really awful, mm. awful. <laughs> but I forgave her. Great. Ben, what book would you like to recommend? I'm really into this book. Um, this anthropologist named Anna Singh, I think is how you say her name, wrote a book called The Mushroom at the End of the World. And it's, um, I can't remember the subtitle. It's something about hunting for mushrooms and the capitalist ruins but it, it's this it's this incredible uh book of anthropology that's all about the i think it's called the matsutake mushroom which is like the world's most expensive mushroom but she tracks like the weird communities of people who've often been violently exiled who are harvesting the mushroom in the northwest of the u.s and like the different kinds of affiliations and collaborations that spring up and then she'll like track the commodity chain of the mushroom and but it's it's kind of like even though it's about mushrooms it's this great book about art because like you can't make the mushroom grow like you can't it, it only grows in disturbed ecological environments so you have to like search for it it's a kind of like fecundity that grows out of damage and she's really into entanglement and impurity like all these different ways that out of the wreckage of a disturbed forest people come together to find mushrooms and then kind of like the artwork sometimes the mushroom is just a commodity but sometimes it's like important for religious or symbolic reasons or whatever and she kind of like tracks the shifting meanings of the mushroom so it it and it's also like a very reflective first person work where she'll talk about like the kind of meditative practice of mushroom hunting and believing in like the possibility of still making discoveries in the midst of these ravaged landscapes so i feel like i keep thinking about the book in terms of you know, I mean, like the impossible, urgent question everyone keeps asking everyone about, like, how do we make meaning now? How do we make community now? How do we, you know, like her answer is is to model is a mode of attention that she developed looking for this mushroom. So it's a really beautiful book. Yeah, it's called The Mushroom at the End of the World. That sounds amazing. I haven't heard of it or her. Yeah. Um, Me neither. Yeah. Love mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Great response, Octavia. <laughs> My pick this month is going to be The Past by Tessa Hadley. Have you read any Tessa Hadley? No, I don't think so. Yeah, neither had I. My friends kept recommending her to me, and um, I can totally see why. She's an incredibly subtle, sort of psychologically astute, really beautiful writer, just 
you know, word by word. She's a wonderful writer and has this wonderful way of getting in people's in inside people's minds um, that I really admired. Uh, the past is about a family um, who comes together at their dead parents' house for one last holiday there in a sort of no-namey place in the English countryside, which if you'd pitched that novel to me, I'd say, I would have said, like, no way. <laughs> um, and nothing really happens of any significance, but it's more just about, it's about family dynamics and power shifts and desire and the ways we come outside and back into ourselves. And it was completely compelling. I read it in basically a day when I was on holiday, and I was so glad that I did, and I'm definitely going to read more of her novels. It sounds really up your street. Yeah. <laughs> and mine. Sorry, that sounded shady. I didn't mean that. It, 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 it was very much my kind of novel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Ben Lerner, to Josh at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com. Also, don't forget, our wonderful totes are selling fast on Etsy, so check us out there as well and buy them for all your friends. Please support our show. All the profits we make go back into the show and help us make it bigger and better. So we'd be super grateful for your support. It's Merry true. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and happy Hanukkah. Um, we'll be back next year. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.